Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Mushroom Show where we are lucky enough to be interviewing one of the greats in the mushroom world, Alan Rockefeller. This was actually supposed to come out a while ago but we had some audio issues so I thought it was fit for the pit until a talented audiophile and good friend of mine managed to fix it so we were able to salvage this interview and I'm super glad we did because it is an awesome conversation. Alan is currently the chief mycologist at a company called Mimosa Therapeutics, and he was actually in his lab while we were recording his interview. Basically, he is now doing his dream job of finding species of mushrooms, identifying them, documenting them, doing some DNA sequencing, and cataloging them to determine their potential as a therapeutic agent, which I think is super cool. First of all, he is amazing at taking photographs of mushrooms, and he does this often, taking photographs and identifying them, and then posting them on iNaturalist, which is a website where everyone can share identification information about mushrooms. He also does a lot of DNA barcoding of mushrooms, as I mentioned, which is a huge contribution to the world of mycology. And it's actually not as complicated or as difficult as it sounds, which we will get into in the interview. He's also traveled to a lot of different countries to study mushrooms, specifically Mexico, where he has gone almost every year recently to study psilocybe species. You're probably not going to find another person that is this genuinely interested and passionate about mushrooms, and we are super grateful to have Alan on the show. Before we get into this interview, I did just want to highlight one thing that Alan is passionate about, and that is citizen mycology. Basically, the idea that there's still so much left to learn, so much blue ocean or green forest or however you want to put it, in terms of the potential discoveries that can still be made in mushrooms. And no matter what your level of interest or what your level of of knowledge about mushrooms, there's a really good chance you can contribute to the space, whether that's just taking photographs and putting them up on iNaturalist, or by doing some of your own DNA barcoding, or any other interest of mushrooms that you want to explore, you can add to the science of mycology. I do think that that is such a powerful and exciting idea, and in this interview, I'm hoping that it educates and also inspires. So without further ado, let's hop into the interview with Alan Rockefeller. Alan Rockefeller, thank you so much for joining us on The Mushroom Show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. It looks like you're in, in a lab. Where, where, are you, where are you calling in from right now? Yeah, um, I'm in my laboratory in Oakland, California. Okay, awesome. And that's, I assume, where you do a lot of your work is, is, is out of Oakland? From Yeah, it's a laboratory for my work. So I work for a small psychedelics company called Mimosa Therapeutics. And this is our lab here. Um, I can show you around really quick. Um, here is a microscope that I use as a differential interference contrast microscope, and then the stereoscope that I use to prepare samples. And here's a bioreactor, and then here's a flow hood, and here's all the DNA sequencing stuff over here. I do a lot of DNA barcoding here, and then I have uh, lots of cabinets full of mushrooms and chemicals. Awesome. That looks like a... Uh... An absolute uh, wonderland for the mushroom enthusiast. So the first thing I wanted to say, um, you know, there's a lot of people interested in, in mushrooms today. More people becoming interested in mushrooms all the time. But to be honest, there's not many people in the space that have as genuine of an interest and as, as a bit of an obsession as, as you do. I think it's really, really cool. So I am a little bit curious. How did you get interested in mushrooms in the first place? And why do you have such a drive for the study of mycology? Well, that's a really good question and maybe not the easiest one to answer, but I've always been really into my hobbies. Um, you know, I started out when I was really little doing chemistry and studying plants and then computer security. And uh, about 20 years ago, I went hiking and there was mushrooms everywhere. And I was like, oh, I just want to learn about this stuff. And so 
I started uh, started taking pictures of them and reading as much as I can. And the more I learned, the more interesting they became. So, um, yeah, I just kind of got more and more into it. And about 10 years ago, I decided to quit my office job and just do mushroom stuff full time. Um, so that's what I've been doing. That's awesome. And I think, uh, yeah, doing mushroom stuff full time, it's, it's a real rabbit hole that you can dive into. And I think it's one of those things that the more you learn about mushrooms, the more you realize you, we don't really know that much about mushrooms and it leaves so much to be discovered. But I think a lot of people, if, they, if they've heard about your work before or they've seen you before, uh, they might have seen it in the context of your travels to Mexico and your studying of mushrooms in Mexico. So how did you get interested in, in studying mushrooms from Mexico and going there every year to, to learn more about them? Um, well, Mexico, um, I didn't know too much about it, but I was on a website called The Shroomery, and it's a magic mushroom website, and there was a guy named Cactu, and he um, would post photos of these uh, psilocybes from Mexico, and they were very large uh, compared to our psilocybes in the United States. And so one day I messaged him, I'm like, hey, can I go come there on my vacation? hunt mushrooms with you and surprisingly he said yes and so i bought a ticket to guadalajara and showed up and met, met him and uh turned out he was a biologist um a really cool guy and so within an hour of getting off the plane we were in this uh, surrounded by psilocybe lessons and uh that was just a, such a unique habitat and you know there's so many cool things there and you know, we spent about a week going to all these different parks and seeing uh, all sorts of different places and habitats and plants. And so I was like, wow, this is a uh, this is really, really cool spot. And so uh, every time I got vacation after that, I just uh, kept going back there um, Just spend my vacations there going around Mexico uh, with cactus looking for mushrooms. And uh, then in 2011, he moved to Nicaragua, which is where he still is. But by then, I already had all my favorite places. And so I just uh, kept going and uh, looking around, see what I could find. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think um, I was recently watching the episode that you did with Hamilton Morris on Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, where you guys were traveling around looking for various species of psilocybe. Is that the main thing that you're looking for in, in Mexico is various species of psilocybe? Or are you looking for all sorts of different mushrooms down there? I look for all sorts of different ones, but I do like finding psilocybe. So usually what I'll do is find a place that I think psilocybe would occur either uh, through records um, that have been published or just as the right habitat and I'll go there. And then once I get there, I'll study every single mushroom I can possibly find. Um, and I'll run across a lot of psilocybe doing that and also lots of other stuff. That's awesome. Is there anything in, in that episode again, uh, Hamilton Morris found this one that looked like had a bunch of tap roots and stuff like that. Is there anything particularly interesting or something unusual that you found during your travels in Mexico that you'd want to, to bring up? Oh, there's so many things, you know, like in the United States, I might find like you know, one or two really interesting finds per, per month. And in Mexico, it's one or two really interesting finds per day. You know, just things that I think like, wow, I can't wait to study this and see what's up with this thing. Um, and so, you know, every time it's, it's hard to pick one thing because every day there's, there's neat things. Yeah. And I think, you know, that is one of the things that the most alluring things about mushrooms and mycology in general is that there is still so much that we don't really know. And it's one of the sciences where there's still a ton of room remaining for what we call citizen science 
or you know people literally just going out and studying and learning and basically anybody with um, you know a bit of a drive can add to the field of mycology can add to mycology much like you do maybe not to the same level but there is this huge opportunity for citizen science so i wanted to get your opinion on what you think the opportunities are for people not only learning about mushrooms but also contributing to the, you know, the science of, of mycology. Well, I don't think I do anything particularly special. Um, you know, I just show up and look for mushrooms. And then when I find them, take the best picture I possibly can. And uh, then try to figure out what it is that I photograph. So none of that's particularly difficult. I think anybody could do exactly what I do. Um, you know, it took me a few years to get up to speed, but there's, there's nothing that you need to know that you couldn't just Google for. Um, but yes, it's true that there's a huge opportunity for citizen scientists in mycology. And one reason for that is because there's not very much money in mycology. So uh, there's not really people that are paid to go out and discover new species. You know, there's a few universities, but there's so many new species out there and so much to discover that, you know, some guy that gets paid to discover new species, he'll find a few of them and then he'll be busy for a couple of years studying those. and. You know, during that time, there's just thousands of new species that slip through the cracks. Um, and mushrooms are a little bit harder to study than plants because they're very ephemeral. You know, they only come up after rain. They're not always in the same spot. Uh, some of them you might only see it once every several years or some of them maybe just once in a lifetime. And then others are pretty common. Um, but it's not like a plant where you can just walk up to it and you know exactly where it is and you can just walk up to it and study it. And I think there's also a lot more money in plants, so um, a lot more funding to discover new plant species. Um, whereas with mushrooms, it seems like the, pe the people that are out looking for mushrooms are doing it because they're really interested um, in the, you know, what's growing out there and just really interested in the mushrooms um, and, and less so because it's a, a viable career. Right. And I think um, you're right. A lot of people who do this work have a genuine interest in mushrooms, which I think is really cool. And you mentioned you like to go out and just find mushrooms and take a look around. And personally, that's one of my favorite things to do, too. Just walk around in the woods, see what you can find, take a picture of it. But you go a step further than just taking a picture of it. Obviously, you try to identify the species. And you do that uh, using various methods, obviously, but something that you do is called DNA barcoding. So I was hoping you could explain a little bit what DNA barcoding it is and maybe try to demystify that process a little bit for people who are interested in perhaps even pursuing uh, doing that themselves. Yeah, um, DNA barcoding is where you get a little piece of DNA from the mushroom. Um, and so uh, do some, uh, some little bit of chemical stuff. It's nothing very hard. In fact, it's pretty easy to set up a lab to do this in your house. And it costs uh, about $10 per sample if you do your lab work. So you can um, get a little snippet of DNA from any mushroom. And these snippets are really cool because they don't do anything at all. So they're free to mutate. And so each mushroom will have a unique barcode. And so um, when you get this, it's a text file that's about 700 characters long. And then you can compare it with all the other mushrooms that have been found. Um, so what I do is I try to get the best picture I can of a mushroom, then I'll dry it, bring it back to the lab and extract the DNA, run it through PCR, and then use gel electrophoresis to see if the PCR worked. And if it does, then I send it off for Sanger sequencing. So the whole process takes about a day, um, though you can do lots of samples in that time. And uh, what I get back is a text file that I upload to NCBI Blast. And that's when I start to get my results. I can see 
where else in the world uh, this exact thing has been found and what all of its close relatives are. Um, and sometimes there's no matches at all, like if it's something pretty rare or something that's endemic to a small area, then um, I'll be the first person to find it. And so I take all of my DNA sequences and upload them to GenBank uh, right away before I forget. And that way, uh, any, anytime anybody finds the same mushroom that I find, they can see my sequence data, my photos, my microscopy. And then the, they'll be like, okay, cool, we have the same thing in this other place. Um, so it's really good for tying collections together. Um, like there might be 10 people that have found it and you know, being able to see all those 10 observations, I can see the photos and the microscopy and you know, where they found it, and what time of year and all that kind of thing. Um, just knowing for sure that like, you know, 10 different observations of the same thing is extremely valuable. Um, and then the other really nice thing is that you can see how it's related to all the other sequences in GenBank. So a sequence by itself is pretty meaningless, uh, but a sequence, when you compare it to a uh, hundred of its close, most closely related sequences, becomes very meaningful because you can see how close it is to these different species, where it fits in on the tree of life with everything else, uh, how many other people have been finding it, and, uh, and um, what else? That, that, that's about it. Um, so, I mean, this just adds to the idea of, of citizen science, right? Because you said, you know, you, you add it to some sort of database, which I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, academic uh, places that are adding to this database. But if also citizens can add to this database, it just kind of has this snowball effect where we're learning more and more about mushrooms. But I wanted to dig in a little bit more on the, um, the actual method. So you mentioned you use a, a small snippet of DNA or small piece of DNA that is essentially meaningless. And it, so what do you mean by that? So I guess like I have a, I'm wearing a shirt right now of Amanita muscaria and there's a little, um, a chunk of the, the DNA sequence there. Um, what do you mean when you say a meaningless sequence of DNA and how is that uh, interpreted? Yeah, I have the same t-shirt. I love it. Um, but you know, <laughs> mushrooms have uh, f about, about 40 million base pairs. So that means that mushrooms, you know, their code is like a, a text file where we document this 40 million characters long. Um, but the type, type of sing, sequencing that's inexpensive and easy to do is Sanger sequencing, and that will read about 1,000 at a time. So use a chemical reaction called PCR or polymerase chain reaction to select which uh, 1,000 out of that 40 million you want to read. And so uh, fortunately, everybody likes to uh, select the same little bit so you can all compare data. And one of the easiest parts to read, because there's so many copies in the genome, um, is called the internal transcribe spacer. And so the ITS region is the most commonly sequenced gene in fungi, and it is a really good barcode. So it's extremely variable. And so two different species are very likely to have different uh, ITS genes. And um, you can amplify it pretty easily uh, out, of, out of any mushroom. And because there's so many copies, even old mushrooms, uh, sometimes 10 or 100 years old, you can still get uh, this gene and be able to sequence it. And so, um, and so, yeah, that's the part that I choose. But if I, uh, the part that you get is depends on the primers you add to the PCR reaction, and you can add any primers you want. So a primer pair costs about $10 to have custom synthesized, and you just type some DNA code into a web page and click order, and then they drop it off of your house, and then you have is custom primers. So with those, you can get any part of the genome. So any of those uh, 40 million bases you can get. Um, so we just get the ITS because it's uh, 
is so easily, you know, it mutates so easily, so it gives you really good species resolution. And because everybody is getting the same little piece, so we can all directly compare our DNA snippets. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I think there was just kind of a light bulb moment that went off in my head. So basically, it's a much more efficient process than sequencing the entire genome of the mushroom, but it will tell you as much as you need to know in terms of comparing species. And this is what allows people to do it kind of on a smaller scale at home, which I think is really cool too. I think when people think about you know, sequencing genes or DNA stuff, it sounds like something you would need a big lab for and you need millions of dollars for. But the fact that you can do it at home is really cool. And um, there, there is, for people listening to this or watching this, there is some videos on YouTube. Uh, I think you've done like two and a half hour lectures uh, teaching people exactly how to do this. So I encourage people, if you want to do this kind of really cool thing at home, go check out some of those lectures. We'll put the links in the description below uh, for people that want to check that out as well. But as you're doing this, I imagine you've sequenced, how many mushrooms have you sequenced now? How many times have you done this uh, sequencing? Uh, it seems like uh, about, I have about 800 in GenBank. It's, it's a little bit hard to count exactly, but um, so, something like that. Wow. That and, and how many of those, are there any of those that have been kind of like brand new species or stuff that's never been found before? Yeah, I would say about 100 of them. Um, they didn't have any matches in GenBank. So that means it's either a new species or it's a known species that hasn't been sequenced yet. That's, that's cool. Is there anything like anything that you named? I, I was reading some stuff on one of the articles. There was a, a species of psilocybe that you d discovered, psilocybe alani. Oh, I didn't really discover it. I just worked help, uh, helped uh, proofread the paper on it. Oh, okay. Okay. I must have misinterpreted that. But so Psilocybe Allen I is not actually named after Alan Rockefeller. It's named after another, another Allen. After John Allen. And he's the person who found it uh, and sent it in for analysis to the person who published it the first time. But he's definitely not the first person to find it and not the first, first person to send it in. Uh, but he's the first person to send it to somebody that actually wrote about it. Okay. Okay. That's really awesome. I mean, again, that's the thing that's so cool about mushrooms, right? Is like you could quite legit, I mean, it would be pretty rare to find a new species of animal, maybe less rare to find a new species of plant, but you could quite literally be walking in the woods somewhere randomly, even in the US, Mexico, Canada, and find a brand new species of mushroom that has never been discovered before. Usually you'll see maybe 50 new species of mushrooms per day. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, you say f potentially 50 new species per day. Yeah, I mean, more if the rains are really good and you walk all day. Wow. I mean, that's just so remarkable to think about. I mean, and, you know, there's already lots of identified species of mushrooms. You know, there's tens of thousands of known species of mushrooms, and we keep adding to that all the time. And it just really adds to the fascination, for me anyways, the, the interest of wanting to go in the woods. I always think it's kind of like hunting Pokemon or something. It's like that same kind of feeling, right? Where <laughs> you're out in the woods and you can be finding something new and it's just such a, a, a cool thing. Um, on that same note though, in one of your lectures, you mentioned uh, in general, and that was a pretty generalized statement. So I want to get your opinion on it. You said, if you pick, you know, a random mushroom in general, about 1% might have psilocybin, 1% are deadly, 20% are poisonous, 60% are edible, and about 20% are too bitter or tough to to be eaten. I guess that's a totally generalized statement because it can depend on where you're hunting the mushroom, the time of year, et cetera. But is that a pretty fair statement? Like in, in general, only about 1% of the mushrooms might be deadly poisonous? Yeah, in general, that's accurate. Um, you know, usually I'll walk all day and, and only see a handful of deadly mushrooms or, or often none at all. But then, you know, in California at the beginning of the rainy season, death caps are everywhere. So 
you know, if you're walking through oak woodlands at the early rainy season, you'll see hundreds of deadly mushrooms in a day. Um, so it's highly variable, but in general, um, if you just pick a random mushroom and eat it, the chances of you dying are extremely slim. Right. You know, there's a bit of a mycophobia, right? I mean, I think if you pick a random plant and eat it, the chances of you getting sick or getting an illness or even dying are, are probably about the same. as Plants are much more dangerous than mushrooms uh, because plants, uh, when, you, when an herbivore eats a plant, the plant dies and it's gone. Whereas if a herbivore eats a mushroom, that just helps spread its spores. So mushrooms don't really have any incentive to develop to toxins. Well, plants have a huge incentive to develop toxins to deter herbivores. So um, plants on average are much more toxic than mushrooms. Uh, seems like when mushrooms have toxins, it's really just randomly. Uh, like they, they have so many crazy chemicals in them and some of them, those chemicals happen to poison us. Uh, whereas when plants have toxins, it's generally on purpose. Do you have any theories as to why plant why mushrooms have certain compounds i mean obviously the obvious thought for why mushrooms have deadly poisonous compounds is that so they're not eaten at certain stages of the life cycle like maybe you know amanita muscaria might be poisonous until it's fully opened up and then it's less poisonous to flies etc but do you have any theories on why the death cap contains you know deadly deadly toxins as far as i can tell it's totally random uh, but, you know, not everything in nature needs to have a reason. As long as it's not too expensive for the organism, it's going to, you know, keep these, uh, these traits. And um, so there might be a reason, there might not. Uh, but I certainly don't know it. And it's, it's possible that nobody does and nobody ever will. Right, right. I guess, uh, yeah, we don't have to answer... We don't have to answer every question. I guess lots of people have different theories. It's interesting too, like the theory of like, why, why do certain mushrooms contain psilocybin? But I guess, like you said, it could be something that's just totally random and happens to have a really profound effect on, on the human mind. Yeah. I think the person who's done the most research into that is Dr. Jason Slot, who's a researcher at Ohio State. And uh, there's a really good crime case, Botany Doesn't episode where he interviewed uh, Jason Slot about a year ago. And uh, he's got a lot of insights, but, you know, long story short, nobody knows why psilocybin is in mushrooms. Very interesting. Um, but on, on that same vein, though, if people are out in the woods, they're looking for mushrooms, you know, maybe people won't go all the way down the rabbit hole and try and do DNA sequencing. But if people just want to identify mushrooms or at least get a good handle of identifying mushrooms, I think people don't realize it's not as hard as you think it is, especially to get a, a pretty good handle on it or be pretty comfortable to at least get something down to a genus. Um, you seem to be, be pretty good at it. Obviously, uh, again, taking you back to that Hamilton Morris or Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia episode, you're just pointing out mushrooms randomly and spitting off these complicated Latin names. And I think people think that might be kind of hard to do. But do you have any tips for people who just want to learn a little bit about how to identify mushrooms? Um, it's really no different than learning a foreign language in, in that at the beginning, it's really difficult and overwhelming, but, you know, after a while, it becomes e you know, very easy and second nature. So um, really, it just takes paying close attention to the mushrooms you find. So if you see some mushrooms, don't just walk past them, but stop and pick them up and smell them, taste them, take note of the texture and the trees that are nearby and get good pictures of them and then upload those pictures to the Internet. And um, that, you know, that will get you on, on your way to rem remembering it the next time you see it. Right. And there's certain places that you've mentioned before in terms of like where you can upload these pictures. One of them is iNaturalist. Another one I, th I think you've talked about is called Mushroom Observer. 
which are really cool resources. So what what do you uh, what do you have to say about Mushroom Observer and like how you can utilize it to help identify mushrooms and help add to the the field of mycology? The Mushroom Observer and iNaturalist are citizen science websites, and they keep a database of everything that everyone's ever found. So if you have any mushroom pictures, you can upload them to one or both of these sites, and people will identify them for you. And also, it'll keep a permanent record, and so it helps. Um, helps increase our knowledge about which mushrooms are in which part of the world and what time of year they come about, you know, under what conditions they fruit and all of those sorts of things. Um, I like to use it just because that way I can keep track of everything I've ever found and everything that, uh, you know, that I've seen. And it's, you know, really helps with the memory. And what also really helps is to identify things for other people. And so, you know, every day I'll spend a few minutes going on iNaturalist and Mushroom Observer and uh, identifying mushrooms for other people. And so not, not only does that keep it fresh in my mind and kind of, you know, keep me up to date on what's out there, but I get to see what's coming up, uh, you know, all over the world. And then if I see it's really good in some specific place, I can just go there and, you know, I, I can know when to hunt mushrooms. Like if I'm planning on a trip to Arizona, I'll just search on a naturalist and mushroom observer for everything that's been found in Arizona today. And, uh, you know, if it looks all dried up and crispy, then, uh, you know, I won't buy a plane ticket. But if, if the mushrooms there look really good, then I check the weather and I see another storm in the forecast, um, then I'll buy a ticket and head out there and uh, it'll be really good. So, so that's like identifying mushrooms from, from pictures, which obviously not all mushrooms can be identified from pictures because sometimes there's a lot more to it than that. But on that same vein, what do you think about like those apps that are available now where people can just like take a picture of mushroom and it uses some sort of artificial intelligence to help uh, identify the mushroom. Do you think there's any utility to those? And if not, do you think maybe in the future they might become more useful? Uh, I think those apps are great. And a lot of people are very upset with the apps because they're wrong really often. But I think that's totally fine that the apps are wrong and people using the apps, you know, of course they know that if they take a terrible and blurry picture, the app isn't going to have any idea. It's just going to spit out a random name. Uh, but any app that brings people closer to nature and gets them outside more and gets them looking at these mushrooms closer is a good app. Um, you know, the, I think the best app by far is the iNaturalist app because it's not only mushrooms, it's plants and birds and bugs and everything else. And it has some artificial intelligence that uses photos of everything else that's been found uh, to try to identify. And so if your photo is not very good, it works about half the time. But if your photo is really good, then it can work maybe 90% of the time, which is pretty good for a computer. Um, one thing to keep in mind with this is that iNaturalist only uses the first photo in your observation. So if you take a photo that has the underside of the mushroom and the top of the mushroom in the same picture and set that as the first photo, then iNaturalist will be pretty accurate um, as far as what it suggests to you. Whereas if you just take a picture of the top of the mushroom, you know, it doesn't really have very much to go on. Um, but, you know, iNaturalist does not only that, the artificial intelligence, but also the, you know, the permanent database and then the humans going through the database identifying stuff. So I think that's why it's better than some of the other apps that just kind of spit out a name and then don't record the data. Right. A combination of, of human and machine, I guess. Uh, because there is some discernment that's required. For example, you know, if you were to take a, take a picture of Amanita muscaria when it's just in its egg form and upload it to one of these apps that might think it's a puffball, for example, when, you know, three days later, two days later, it will look like a completely different mushroom. So I guess 
the time, the timing that you use. And that's, you know, you talked about mushrooms being ephemeral and one of the things that makes them so interesting. Um, but that can make a huge difference as well, right? When trying to identify mushrooms. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the photo quality makes a huge difference. Um, pretty much any mushroom could be identified from a very good photo. Um, but, you know, taking a very good photo is not intuitive. If you just, um, you know, first time taking a picture of the mushroom, you're going to end up with a terrible photo just because there's a, a few things that people need to do in order to get a good photo. And so what are some of those things? I, I did see there is a video on YouTube, uh, which people should check out of you explaining how to take really good photos of mushrooms. But maybe in a few sentences, you can explain, you know, what are some tips for, for taking good photos for mushrooms? Oh, yes. I remember that video and I've actually learned a lot since then. So I should make some new ones. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the most important things is deciding which mushroom to photograph. You know, if it's kind of tattered or there's only one of them, no matter what you do, you're not going to get a good picture out of them. So first I walk until I find some mushrooms that look cool and they're interesting and there's several of them in different stages of development. And then uh, I'll look for a good cluster of these mushrooms or a good grouping, you know, several that are just naturally in the same spot. And then pick a few others from around that area that are not part of that group and set them down in front of the other group. And that way I get one picture that has all of the different uh, all the different features and all the different stages of development that this mushroom can have. And uh, the lighting needs to be good. And by good lighting, I mean not direct sunlight. So if there's direct sunlight, you have someone block the sun. So you're taking a picture in, in shade. Um, and you know, it needs to be in focus. Um, cell phones are really good for taking pictures of larger mushrooms. But for really tiny mushrooms, you want to use a DSLR with a macro lens. Um, so, uh, you know, what, another thing that's really important is where you hold the camera or where you hold the phone. If you kind of just like hold the camera or phone directly above the mushroom, it's not going to look very good. Generally, it looks a lot better when the camera is closer to the ground. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, do you have some beautiful pictures of mushrooms that you quite often share on Facebook? And I've seen them all over the place. Really, really cool. Um, Mushrooms are obviously becoming a lot more popular right now as well. They seem to be exploding. But one of the things I want to talk to you about, um, a lot of your work revolves around psilocybin or working with not necessarily psilocybin, but uh, psilocybe species. So what do you think is the most intriguing aspect of the species, the, the genus psilocybe? And what is some of the work that you're doing uh, with that? Well, a lot of people are interested in psilocybe because it has such profound medicinal benefits and one thing about them is that you know a lot of people have uh, depression uh, or addiction issues, and there aren't very many medicines that the doctors can give you that work very well. Um, but the psilocybin mushrooms do work for quite a bit. You know, it's much more likely to work for people. I certainly don't fix everybody, but they work be better for more people than any of the pills that they have in the pharmacy. And so. Um, you know, it's the medicinal potential makes them really interesting. Um, they're also really interesting because they're illegal most places. So it's like this forbidden mushroom. Um, and then there's also a whole lot of different species. And some of the species are very common and they're all over the place. And some of them are extremely rare, like maybe they've only been found once in recorded history. Uh, so there's... Uh, there's a lot, a lot of really interesting ones that grow in really interesting habitats sometimes. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's lots of, there's also a lot of people that cannot study them just because, you know, they have an academic job, they don't want to lose their job or get arrested for having the wrong mushrooms. 
Um, so, you know, for that reason, a lot of people that are interested in them you know, are, are very quietly interested in them and, and don't want to post about them uh, online or you know, study them. Um, so those are some of the reasons that I find them interesting. Yeah, and it does seem like the, the narrative around it seems to be changing quite a bit. A lot more people are learning a lot more about um, psilocybe mushrooms, not just because of the, well, a lot because of the work you're doing, but things like fantastic fungi and all sorts of new studies that are coming out. And it does seem to be for sure that, you know, the narrative is, is changing around this. And a lot of people seem to be benefiting from not only the mushrooms, but the research around the mushrooms. So you mentioned, so right now you're in the lab at the place that you work called Mimosa Therapeutics. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the work that you do with Mimosa Therapeutics and, and what you're what you're doing there? And Mimosa is a small psychedelics company, and uh, they're kind of designed, um, you know, founded to be this um, kind of a natural psychedelics company and um, kind of a, a small kind of like uh, organic answer to some of the large greedy psychedelics companies. So if you look around, there's a, a bunch of large psychedelics companies that have you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding and are trying to patent all sorts of stuff. Um, whereas Mimosa has a much smaller bu budget and we're not trying to, you know, lock down uh, the mushrooms and make it so only we can profit from them and, and stuff like that. Um, so I study mushrooms um, and so I spend a lot of time in the field, um, walking all over the place, trying to find what I think might be interesting and might have interesting chemicals in them. And they'll bring them back to the lab and culture them and do the microscopy and DNA sequencing to figure out what it is that I've cultured and see if we can do anything useful with it. So are you looking for species that might be either easy to cultivate or might have like higher levels of active compounds or just are you just trying to set like a base layer of knowledge that you can build up and, and, and discover things further? Uh, really all of that, yes. In terms of like the level of psilocybin in mushrooms is that something that like in different psilocybin containing mushrooms is that something that varies a lot depending on the species or depending on the various strain within the species or is that something that is you know pretty common across the board for all of these mushrooms it varies a lot from one species to the next and even in the same species it varies a lot and um so you know, you can have even like, cultivated indoors, some of the mushrooms being five times stronger than some of the other ones. Um, usually that's because there's, you know, it's a multi-spore grow and there's lots of different, uh, lots of different strains kind of all growing in the same place. Um, but what also varies is the ratio of the alkaloids. So there's uh, several different psychoactive alkaloids, maybe up to eight of them or so, um, that give the psilocybin mushrooms their effects. And nobody knows if the different species have different effects. Um, most people that have tried a bunch of different species do notice different effects from different species, but we're not really sure which alkaloids are contributing to that different effect, uh, if any. And so there's uh, definitely a lot to be studied there. Uh, again, that goes back to I'm always amazed by, you know, how little we actually know about the, the natural world around us. So would you say, is that kind of analogous to say, in, in, you know, in cannabis, there's obviously THC, but there's like all these other like CBD and CBG and all these other compounds that could have a potential effect. And you're saying it's the same with mushrooms. So there's psilocybin, but there's all of these other alkaloids that together or blended or whatever could have these different effects that we don't fully understand quite yet. Yeah, um, certainly the main one is psilocin because that's the one that crosses the blood brain barrier and has the main hallucinogenic effect. Right. But, you know, there's several other tryptamines that are found uh, in there that might uh, 
kind of activate the same receptors or change how cellulose activates the receptor. And then also there's beta carbolines, uh, which are MAO inhibitors, sort of like um, are in that ayahuasca, and those will definitely change psychedelic experiences. And then um, there's probably quite a bit more to be discovered in, in there too, because you know any mushroom that you study carefully, you'll find hundreds of different chemicals in there. And some of them are unknown to science or you know poorly understood. And so, um, yeah, definitely a lot to be discovered. Yeah, and, and speaking of which, is it like a relatively complex process to dis- to figure out how much psilocin is contained within a, uh, a certain mushroom, or is it um, like what what is that process like? Yeah, it's pretty complex. Um, the, the easiest way is to use like one of these test kits. There's one called Miraculix that you can order, and it's a solution that changes darker color uh, due to the tryptamines present, and so that gets you to around. Um, you know, like point within 0.2%. So it's you know, relatively accurate, but not super precise. And it doesn't separate the different alkaloids. So, you know, that's like how much total tryptamine content there is, but you're not really sure how much is psilocin or psilocybin or veocystin or some of the other alkaloids. So to actually get you know, real numbers on this, uh, you need uh, equipment called HPLC. And an NHPLC usually costs about $20,000. And then you're comparing the different chemicals in the mushroom uh, against a reference standard. So you need a tiny bit of the pure chemical that you want to test for in order to use the HPLC to, dis- to figure out what's in, you know, in a sample. Um, if you don't have those chemicals, the reference standards, or they don't exist, then you can use a technique called mass spectroscopy. Uh, to figure that out. And those get real expensive, uh, up to a couple hundred thousand dollars or more sometimes. Um, so if you have like a liquid chromatography setup connected to a mass spec, um, that can tell you a whole lot about what's in, in a mushroom. Uh, but even then, it's uh, it's a lot of work to you know, use this equipment to get accurate, you know, um, you know an accurate readout of, of what's really there. Yeah, and I imagine because of the way um, psilocybin mushroom containing mushrooms have been treated over the last however many years, there's probably not a huge body of research yet. It's probably still pretty open for uh, for people to add to that body of research. Yeah, definitely. That's really really cool. Um, speaking of the the different chemicals within mushrooms, you know, when everybody thinks about these psychoactive mushrooms, they think about psilocybin containing mushrooms, but there's other psychoactive mushrooms like the one I'm wearing on my shirt right now, Amanita muscaria. Can you just give kind of the brief overview of the differences? Like they obviously contain much different compounds, but can you just kind of give people a quick overview of what the differences are between, you know, a psychoactive Amanita or a psychoactive psilocybin mushroom? So they're extremely different because the active ingredient in Amanita is muscamol. And so psilocybin is a tryptamine, and tryptamines are very close to serotonin in chemical structure. So they uh, activate serotonin receptors in your brain, whereas muscamol uh, activates the GABA receptors in your brain, um, and similar to alcohol. So the effects are very different. Um, you know, the effect of muscamol is not exactly like alcohol, but it's, it's similar. Uh, and then it, it kind of slows you down and, um, you know, kind of has that, that more of a relaxing thing, whereas the, you know, the psilocybin is more like a mind-opening, you know, very trippy, colorful effects. So, um, yeah, those are the main two categories of psychoactive mushrooms. Very cool. And would you say right now there's more research being done on the psilocybin-containing mushrooms than on the 
Amanita or muscimol-containing mushrooms? Yes, for lots of reasons. Uh, for one, the psilocybin-containing mushrooms seem to have a lot more medic medical potential to treat depression and addiction, um, whereas the muscimol-containing mushrooms might be better for anxiety and panic attacks and insomnia. Uh, but the other thing is that the psilocybin mushrooms are extremely easy to cultivate, whereas the um, all of the mushrooms that contain muscimol are ectomycorrhizal, which means that they only fruit in association with trees. And so um, if you want to get lots of muscimol, you have to either synthesize it in the lab or pay people to walk around the forest and pick a whole bunch of animal muscaria. Right. That's a really good point. And I guess it would be hard to get pretty consistent as well, because depending on where you're getting the Amanita muscaria, depending on the specific species or the geography, it can be it can be vastly vastly different i imagine mm -hmm. yep that's for sure it's really cool so do you see um again some of the work you're doing with mimosa therapeutics and some of the other things that are happening do you see um it continuing to move into the direction of using psilocybin containing mushrooms as a therapeutic in the future yes i think because psilocybin mushrooms are so effective um, they're going to continue to be more and more important and I think uh, what's needed is both de decriminalization and legalization. Uh, we need decriminalization because it's completely unjust that people are being tossed in jail for this. You know, it's a bad use of police resources and, you know, it really shouldn't be illegal at all. Um, so there you know, shouldn't be any criminal penalties for people that pick or grow or sell these mushrooms. But we also need legalization so people can buy them from a store if they want to do that, or a doctor can prescribe them to their patients uh, if they think a patient could benefit from it. So doctors should be able to prescribe, you know, very pure uh, compound with like a very, very uh, well characterized dosage. Um, whereas people should also just be able to legally forage them or, or grow them at home uh, if they want. And that way, the most people could benefit from these molecules. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think this is one of the things where, you know, again, the narrative seems to be shifting. A lot more people are opening up to this idea. Um, there's some states that are starting to introduce, you know, legalization initiatives like Oregon and like some of the work that you're doing in Oregon. It's not Oregon, uh, Oakland. Is there anything that you could, um, you know, say about, about the legalization efforts that you've been involved in, in, in say, Oakland, for example? Uh, well, Oakland decriminalized psilocybin uh, and all, all plant medicine uh, about two or three years ago. And uh, that, that's been really nice because now I don't have to wonder if, um, if the police are after me for studying these mushrooms. Um, so I think it's, it's good for science. And I haven't really seen any difference um, other than that. Like, you, know, you don't see people you know, offering mushrooms all over the place or taking them very often. It doesn't seem to have affected the consumption rate, but it definitely has reduced the paranoia. And, um, and, and that's definitely a, a good step in the right direction. Yeah, totally. And again, you can see that happening all over. Um, we're, we're in Canada, but that seems to be happening in Canada as well, although at a much different pace. Um, but it is pretty interesting to see that happening. I think it's I think it's important for you know people to have access to things that can make them healthier and happier. Uh, any way that we can we can make that happen, I think, is a good thing. Um, but again, I want to talk about the shifting narrative a little bit. There was a documentary that that came out on Netflix. Uh, I think it was in July or August. It was from a long time ago. It's called Fantastic Fungi. It's been around for a while. But that documentary, for sure 
completely accelerated the public awareness of mushrooms and how important and how interesting these things are. And I think there's been a really, you know, a lot of steam building up towards that where more and more people are becoming interested in mushrooms. You've been interested in mushrooms for about 20 years, but are you seeing that more and more people are becoming interested in this topic in general in the, in the last couple of years? Oh, definitely. It seems like uh, there's about twice as much interest with every year that passes. And I think that trend will continue. And, and so, so where do you think that goes? Where do you think that leads? Do you think we become a much more mycophilic society that better understands mushrooms? Or where do you think, where do you think this goes? Because I've seen the same thing. A lot more people becoming interested in mushrooms. And uh, uh, again, I've been interested in mushrooms my whole life for whatever reason. I think there are a few of us that just find them super amazing. Um, but again, that seems to be happening more and more and more. Where do you think that leads? Do you see a, a future where there's mycophiles everywhere? Or, or, or what's your opinion on that? I think it'll definitely make people feel more connected to nature. And the more people we get out into nature, um, studying nature, then the more people there are that care about preserving the environment. And so, you know, if there's a lot of people that are going out and picking mushrooms and they propose a debogging or something that destroys the habitat, there will be people who are against that. Whereas if people just never go out uh, into these places that, that they're proposing that they're going to destroy, then nobody's really going to care. So I think, um, yeah, definitely more uh, more people more engaged with nature will lead to more habitat preservation and also hopefully better mental health for people too. You know, a small dose of psilocybin can make people feel better and more mentally healthy for days, weeks, months, and perhaps even years afterwards. And uh, we certainly need more mental health in our society. Uh, you know, more people that, you know, uh, a lot of people have a lot of trauma and, you know, addiction and depression. Um, and those things can be helped a lot by psilocybin mushrooms. Um, so I think having them more available and more around will be better for society as a whole. And like me personally, I notice that sometimes I feel sort of, I don't know if I would call it depressed, but more like, kind of listless and like I don't make very good use of my time and I just don't feel very good and then I'll take some psilocybin mushrooms and I'll wake up the next morning and I'll all of a sudden start doing my work and be feel very productive and I think that's something that a lot of people experience um, is that um, you know it just makes them feel better and when you feel good then you want to get your work done and and, you know, do things that are good for yourself and good for society. And I, I think that's something that psilocybin mushrooms help a lot with. Yeah, almost like, uh, yeah, people want to be, want to just be better in all aspects of life, uh, which is, which is really interesting. I did want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned, you know, it, people getting out in nature and looking for mushrooms kind of makes people more aware of maybe the destruction of different habitats and stuff like that, which is true and really cool and really important. But the thing to note is like mushrooms do sometimes thrive in um, habitats that have been destroyed for whatever reason or habitats that have been disturbed by humans. And I just think that's especially psilocybin mushrooms, right? And I just think that's such an interesting thing. It's like the mushrooms kind of follow us around and show up, <laughs> show up where they need to, um, you know, whether it be in, in, in forests that have been taken down or in, you know, piles of wood chips in, in urban areas or um, you know, Psilocybe cubensis, for example, showing up in cow pastures where there's a lot of human impact. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? And, you know, mushrooms showing up in various, you know, destroyed habitats? Yeah, so uh, a lot of Psilocybe species do like these uh, disturbed habitats. 
but not all of them. Um, some of them, like Silosopy Serenipes or Silosopy Neohalapensis, you only find deep in the forest, and they don't particularly like it when their habitat gets disturbed. Um, so it's not all Silosopies, but definitely uh, quite a few of them um, are like the first thing to colonize uh, after a landslide or after a tree has been turned into wood chips. Um, they're kind of like these primary decomposers that turn the turn the organic matter back into healthy soil and that uh, can lead to other other species and other organisms also being able to uh, being able to do well uh, after these you know, habitats are remedi remediated a little bit uh, by the primary fungi and so um, yeah it's, it's not random it definitely happens yeah no it's so cool um it's something i've noticed as well uh even like with like even morel mushrooms, right? They show up after burns or they show up uh, in apple orchards and stuff like that. Um, again, going back to this topic of there's so much, so much left to be explored. What are you most excited about in mushrooms and what are you most excited about doing over the next few years in, in, the, in the field of mycology? Um, I really like the DNA barcoding and just trying to get as many DNA barcodes as I can online. And then having that uh, tied to really good photos and good quality microscopy, um, I think that's one of the most important things I can do is to get as many barcodes as I can online and encourage other people, encourage mushroom clubs to be barcoding the finds of, of the people that, uh, oh, the finds of their members. Because um, the more data that's on there, uh, then the more that we have to compare against and you can see historical trends and how many species are in a certain area and how many new species are out there and all that kind of thing. Um, so that's something I'm pretty excited about. And then, you know, really um, what excites me is just getting like the best picture I can of every single species that's out there. And so I really like to go out when the season is really good and just try to get, you know, the, the best picture I can and then post it to Wikipedia. And that way the picture, the photo is free for anybody to use for any purpose forever. And, um, and kind of contribute to humanity that way. Um, and um, also, just try, um, there's so many more people that are interested in mushrooms these days. So if I can get them all taking good pictures of mushrooms and uploading those pictures to the internet and uh, saving their finds and DNA barcoding them, um, you know, that will help as well. That's awesome. And again, I think uh, like you're one of the most genuine uh, people in the mushroom space, truly have a passion for mushrooms and adding so much to, to mycology, things like adding stuff to Wikipedia where everybody can benefit from. Uh, I think all of us in the mycological community are truly grateful for the work that you do. If people wanted to learn more about that or wanted to connect with you or see some of these pictures that you're taking, what's the best, be best way that people can connect? Um, sometimes I post on Facebook or Instagram so people can connect with me on there. Um, I'm on Mushroom Observer and iNaturalist every day. So, um, so that, that's a good way. I also have email. Um, so yeah, probably those five things are the, the best way to connect. Cool. Well, we will, uh, we'll post a link to Instagram, to your Instagram and to Mushroom Observer and iNaturalist in the description of this video so people can check out your work. Um, is there anything else you wanted to, to add to the conversation before we before we land this plane? Uh, you've done such a good job asking me about so many different things. Uh, I don't know what, what else I could possibly add.
Awesome. Well, you've done such a good job answering them. I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the Mushroom Show, sharing your knowledge like you do. You've been so generous with your time. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And um, yeah, I think people are going to love this one. So thanks, Alan. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Have a good one. <laughs> you too. Okay, bye.